Good morning. Hey, they're still awake. Perfect. Well, it's great to see the body of Christ together, isn't it? Um, I enjoy standing up here and just watching you guys interact, and we see a lot of what small groups do happen right here, right? Um, the hugging that's going on. It's very encouraging to see. Um, we are in the middle of a sermon series called, What's the Big Deal About Small Groups? Real quick, raise your hand if you were here last week and you heard Dan's message. All right, he kicked it off and kind of looked at Acts 2, the birth of the church, and then gave us some tools to look at deepening our lives as Christians, right? So today we're going to look at care, mutual care, because caring happens in small groups. And what I want to do this morning is really lay out, first of all, the origin or the, the reason that we care for one another. And then we'll get into our passage in 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. And my, my point this morning is not so much that you must join a small group, but that you must care for one another, and small groups are the context for such critical care. So in other words, I'm not going to focus on small groups so much. I'm going to focus on your care for one another. And then I want you to realize that it is the context of small groups in which that happens best. So why did we pick care? Well, care is the expression of love. It's the manifestation or the visible product of love. You can think of it as the application of love, Right? And so small groups plays a key role in the fulfillment of your life purpose, which is to glorify God through caring for one another. And so then you might ask, well, what's the big deal about loving one another, right? I've gotten along fine without it so far. I hope that's not you. But if you look in 1 John 4, 9 through 11, we get a clear picture of why we should love one another. We start in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now here's the gospel. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Okay, there's the corollary. Jesus Christ was sent as the manifestation of God's love, and because of that, because of God's love for us, we also ought to love one another. Listen, if you do not recognize God's love for you, you will not be able to care for others with the love of Christ. If you're in that position, your next step right now is to get to know God, right? God is love. And a great place to start is reading 1 John. Recognize, understand, appreciate God's love for you. And, and John is saying, from that, you are going to be able to care for one another. He's confident in that. Martin Lloyd-Jones says there is no greater theological statement in the whole Bible than these verses. That's, that's pretty serious. 
There's no greater statement theologically in the Bible. Nothing greater than Jesus Christ being the manifestation of God's love and him sending his son to take our place, to be the appeasement of the wrath of God and to be the reconciliation for us. So that is where we begin with love for one another, which the application of is care for one another. When we are in a small group, we're gathering, right? We become intimate. We become a small group that knows one another, and we see all of the applications of it, and we saw the testimonies there of the great things that happen in small groups. It's, it's the opposite of isolation, right? When you are isolated, you don't have that interaction. You don't get to care for one another. And there's a story in the news. Uh, this is back in 2006. It says in January of 2006, officials from a North London Housing Association repossessing an apartment owing to rent made a grim discovery. Lying on the sofa was a skeleton of a 38-year-old woman who had been dead for almost three years. In a corner of the room, the television set was still on, turned to BBC. A small pile of unopened Christmas presents lay on the floor. Dishes were heaped in the kitchen sink. A mountain of mail lay behind the front door. The food in the refrigerator was marked with a 2003 expiration date. The lady's name was Joyce Vincent. And if you had interviewed her friends, they actually made a documentary about her life because the question came up, how in the world can you go eight, I mean, three years, all this time, three whole years without anybody checking on you, without anybody calling you, without anybody worried about you, without anyone even noticing no one's going in and out anymore. Three years, and nobody cared. That's what isolation does. And we, we, we learned that in her life, she had slowly over the years had quit her job. She had started quitting to hang out with her friends. She no longer um, gathered with her friends. She never longer went out. And it was that sense of isolation. And so I want us to think about the fact that isolating ourselves as believers is a disregard for the will of God. It's wasting our lives away, trying to convince ourselves that we have no obligation, no duty to be in relationship with others for God's glory through mutual care. That's where we're going to go this morning. I have three statements of all things in 1 Peter chapter 4. So we're going to be looking at that. That'll be our primary text. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. And these statements are, are, are kind of aspects of care. And our first point is, what is the incentive for care? In other words, why, why now? Why, why right now? And it says in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Okay, that's pretty plain. Why should we care for one another? The end of all things is at hand. There's, there's no mystery here. It literally means the end of all things is coming. So, before all things come to an end, we have some things to do. We have a job. We have duties. We have some priorities that need to get done. And everything on this earth, everything in this present material age is coming to an end. Jesus told his disciples to be alert, to keep watch, and be ready. Because when he returned, everything would end. When Jesus returns, even your good intentions will come to an end. Okay? There's a sense of urgency. Time is short. 
In verse 2 of chapter 4 here, verse Peter, it says, the person who's suffered, the person who has believed in Christ, the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, should not be for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. So the rest of your time here on this earth should be lived for the will of God. And so we know that Christ's return is coming. It will be the end of all things. And so you may be tempted to say, well, if everything's coming to an end, then why bother, right? Why, why should we continue to meet? Why should we care for one another? Why don't we go home? Why don't we sit down and pray and just wait for God, right? We're told to be expectant, to be waiting, to be excited about the return of God, return of Christ, but we're supposed to be busy in the midst of that. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, we're told that we are to consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. We know that, right? But what about when the day is approaching? What about towards the end here? It says, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So carry on, but there's a sense of urgency here where you are to carry on even more. You're supposed to gather together. Don't forsake that. Stir one another up for love and good works. The return of Christ is imminent. That word just basically means nothing has to happen before Christ's return. There's there's no event, there's no prophetic event that says this has to happen before Christ's return. He could come at any point. And so there's that sense of urgency. We are to be caring for one another, loving one another, because... Time is short. It says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. So the first, all things, is the end of all things. There's also an urgency of need here. We read throughout New Testament, Paul to Timothy, um, as well as other areas, it says that in the end, the generations... The people, the men, will look a certain way. They will behave a certain way. And it's not going to be pretty, right? Paul says that in the last days, men will be selfish, disobedient, ungrateful, lovers of money, brutal, haters, treacherous, reckless, lovers of pleasure, holding to a form of godliness. That sounds like today, doesn't it? And yet, the disciples thought they were living in the end days. They thought they were in the last days. They thought in their lifetime they would see Christ return. Peter described his generation as perverse in Acts 2. He told the people, repent and be saved from this perverse generation. What does that make our generation, right? You look at the news and you see everything, every one of these. Wars, murders, killings, hatred, confusion. So there's an urgency of need because in those last days, the world, this nation, our body, you are in great need. I emailed you guys uh, last week, just sent an email out asking for some responses to these two questions. What do you need that others can provide? And what can you provide that others need? 
I just wanted to kind of hear, what are some practical things that within our body maybe we're not aware of, you know? And, and it, was, it was good to hear. I mean, the, the, the typical ones were, you know, what do you need that others can provide? Prayer, accountability, forgiveness, encouragement for my family, teamwork, a dog sitter. And that was great. That's what I want to know. Love, knowledge, skill, support, fellowship, prayer, someone to help me with the ironing on a regular basis. You know, those are the ones that stand out, right? I mean, we all are kind of aware of those things that we all need. But what about those things that we're not aware of? What about those practical things? These have a purpose. They're not just sitting up here because they're randomly... Um, on the stage. These are diapers. And this is kind of a visible reminder of the fact that you as a body has helped me. Um, we adopted in April a little boy named Cooper. And he has been great, but boy, he uses a lot of those. And that was just a very practical way of people coming to us and saying, hey, what do you need? What are some things that can help you as you go through this adoption process. And there are so many needs within our body. There are, there are great, great needs. I mean, there's no difference between providing diapers and providing your time to iron or to help somebody dog sit, right? Or to pray for them or to hold them accountable. These are all needs that we are to care for one another, that we are to meet those needs with the gifts that God has given us. And so, think about what are things in this body, in your small group, in your network, what are those needs that maybe you're not aware of? Now more than ever, there's a great opportunity to be a church that meets those needs. There's an urgency of time, there's an urgency of need. So what's the big deal about small groups? The big deal is that small groups are the context for critical care before the end of all things. Some of you are thinking, oh, it's last days. There are, there are some things happening, right? We're going to get excited. You're just waiting for me to mention Blood Moon or the Shemitah, right? The, the end is near. And there's a lot of talk right now about what's going to happen. Next Sunday, Andy's preaching. He's going to finish up the sermon series. Supposedly, something big is going to happen next Sunday. So, if you're here and you haven't been taken up with Christ, uh, come and hear Andy's final part of our sermon series. But there are those who are experts in prophetic writings, right? And they say, well... Such and such has happened, and there's a lot that we see, whether it's in the moons or the events, and there's a lot of speculation, right? The one thing we do know is that there is no expert on the return of Christ. We just do not know when he will come. But we do know that it is imminent. We do know that it can happen at any point. And so we shouldn't look at these prophetic things as something for us to get agitated or frenzied about. We should see them as warnings. We should take them seriously, but we should see them as warnings for us to be able to live holy lives, repent of our sin, pray for our nation. 
Expect the sudden return of Christ. But be serious. Be watchful. That's what he says in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. The idea there is to stay in your right mind. Control your thoughts. Remain level-headed. Basically, be cool about everything. All right? Remain sober, observant, aware. So live with that hope in us of Christ's return. But be cool. Our second all things phrase is found in verses 8 through 11. And this is referring to the importance of care in your life. Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. That's a a lot in there, but I want to focus on the three things that refer to the importance of God, the above all things statement means that every Christian virtue that you focus on, everything that you think is a priority in life as a believer in relationship, they are secondary to caring for one another. And that's difficult to swallow sometimes. Okay, love for one another, which is caring for one another, it's something we all ought also to be doing, is your primary pursuit in Christian relationship. We see in 1 Corinthians 13, love is the greatest gift without which there is nothing. It is the first virtue to put on in Colossians 3. So it is foundational to life in Christ. And here's where it gets difficult. You think, well, my priority is leading my family. My priority is burden for the loss. My priority is respect for my husband. My priority is love for my wife. It's holy living. It's godly parenting. It's dedicated Bible study. Those are all good things. But Peter is saying here, those are all things, and above all things is care for one another. That is the foundation. Care for one another, and then all those all things... They're going to find their place afterwards. Every other pursuit will find its place. And this is a way for us to trust God, right? This is kind of like you know, uh, the tithing principle or the seek ye first principle. It's the idea that we need to obey God because this is the primary thing and trust that he's going to allow us to have the time, to have the energy, to have the ability for all the other things in life. It's difficult for you to do. It's not easy. So start with love for one another and then go from there. So the importance of care comes from the foundation to our Christian life, but also this is an assignment from God. Caring for one another, it comes from God. It is bestowed on us or conferred to us from God. So it's kind of like placed on us It's a burden, it's a duty for us. It's not something that we can decide that we don't want. We have it, we can decide whether or not we want to use it. 
Care for one another is God's charge to you. He's entrusted us certain gifts in order to minister to others in the body of Christ. Let me read real quick through this passage again. Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. And as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. So there's three things here about this assignment from God. First of all, he says, above all things, have fervent love. I want to look at that word fervent there. Okay, fervent means um, exerting maximum effort. It's straining, okay? If you're focused, you, you have a disregard for everything else because you are intent. It's like the picture of a horse at full gallop. It's stretched out, straining. It's the idea of an athlete at his full potential. Okay, I've got a couple pictures here of what it might look like for an athlete to be straining, okay? They're going to be in their moment of full potential, whether it's running, whether it's tennis, whether it's shot put. And you know something? It can be unflattering at times, right? You catch them right at that moment of strain. And so these are athletes, (laughs) and it just gets more and more hideous, right? It's that point at which Maximum effort is being exerted, and they are focused. And there's an intensity in their faces, right? How are you caring for others with intensity? How are we caring for others fervently? Are we worried about how we're going to look? Are we hanging on to our gifts because... We really just don't think we need to have that passion. Or we just don't have the drive to exert ourselves. What's the reason that we have such a hard time fervently loving one another? Is it selfishness? And we're going to get into this more as well later on. About how do we use our gifts in the way God intends? So we have an obligation to care for one another intensely. So exert yourselves. Show some passion. Um, it's the idea of a coach. When, you, when he sends out a player onto the field, the coach as well as the teammates as well as the fans, they want to see that intensity in the player, right? Um, what happens if he walks out there and he's apathetic about his, his job on the team and uh, how much intensity he puts into the plays? He's going to get pulled, right? An apathetic teammate drags the team down. What does that look like in our church? What does that look like in your small group? If you are not intensely caring for one another, you are literally dragging the church down. The church is weakened When members of the body of Christ who have gifts given by God to care for one another do not use those gifts. He says, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. Don't hang on to it. 
So care for one another fervently. Secondly, care for one another willingly. We look at the idea of hospitality. Hospitality is a great practical way to care for one another. I don't want to focus so much on hospitality, but on the second part of that verse. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. So your heart needs to have a willing attitude, right? Motivated heart with sincerity. This is in Colossians 3.23. Everything we do ought to be done with sincerity of heart. And so the idea of hospitality literally means to love strangers. And so when we, whether we're hospitable or whether we're hanging out together, there's that idea of removing barriers, opening doors, becoming vulnerable with one another. And so be hospitable willingly for the sake of serving others. And third, care for one another as good stewards, as it says in verse 10. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The idea of stewardship there, uh, you, you may be aware, is, is being a manager of a household. Someone who uses the resources available to them and all the abilities to basically manage and run something. And so if we're supposed to be caring for one another as good stewards, we're to manage our gifts wisely as something entrusted to you by the master in order to minister it for the common good. Now, when we receive something from the master, who should we be going to for instruction? Who should we be going to for any kind of direction? The master, right? We shouldn't just decide for ourselves how to utilize these gifts. And sometimes I think we do that. We fail to seek the will of God. We fail to seek the instructions of God. He's the one who sets the terms. He's the one who's given you the gifts. He's the one who has the plan for those gifts. And he chooses to use us in spite of us, right? You see, I don't have the ability. I don't have the resources. I don't have the energy. I don't have the intensity, the intellect, or the words. I don't have the willingness at times. I don't have the heart. I don't even have the example. And yet God chooses to use me in spite of me. We learned last week that the staff at Cape Bible Chapel is flawed, right? Dan spilled the beans there. But it's true. We, we don't have it in us to do ourselves. And so we need to seek God's will. We need to seek from the master, the one who has given it to us, how to utilize our gifts. And it says that whether your gifts are speaking gifts or serving gifts, you're to do these gifts, utilize them, minister to one another with God's will in mind, with his purposes. And so we are to serve with God's resources. If you look at Philippians 4, 19, this is a passage where Paul has received a gift from the Philippian church. He says, Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So in other words, the church had just sent him a massive gift had served them or given him some sort of financial or material or resource, and now the church no longer had that, right? And Paul's one thought was, now trust God to replenish that. He says in the next verse, May God 
supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. In other words, don't hang on to your gift worried that if you give it all away, whether it's your time, your energy, or your resources, that God is not going to resupply you. God is limitless. He's all-sufficient. He's in charge of all. He owns all. And so therefore, that should translate in our generosity and in our care for one another. It should be radical. We should be doing it at the level that God expects, not at our own. In Acts, you see some radical giving. They sold their homes, okay? They sold all their land for the common good to care for one another. That's intense. So why are we hanging on? Why are we holding back? Is it because we don't trust that God is going to provide our need? If he is the master who has given us these gifts to be good stewards of, then he will supply every need. Don't hold back in your care. Let's be radical in our generosity. Let's be radical with our time. Let's be radical in our care for one another. Let's be radical in the ways in which we get creative expressing our love for one another through care. Okay? It's God's ability. It's God's supply. Don't sit on your gift. So what's the big deal? The big deal is that small groups are the context for critical care above all things. Okay? That's the importance. And that's something that we often do not actually recognize. Above all. The third all things phrase is found here in the last verse. And this is the intention with care. What's the, what's the motive? What's the intention? Why are we doing this? He's kind of laid out in verses 7 through 11, kind of the way we serve one another. And then in the end, he says why. That in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Now, there are a lot of good things about small groups, right? There are a lot of things that we benefit from. There are a lot of things that we enjoy. And we saw in the testimonies many of those things. And those are good things to look forward to and to expect and anticipate in a small group. I mean, when you get ready to get to your small group and you might be looking forward to that food, right? You might be looking forward just to that time spent together sharing maybe something that's on your heart. Maybe you're just looking forward to some deep, Bible study with other believers and some prayer time. Those are great. They are not why we join a small group. I want to be clear about this. I'm not standing up here trying to peddle small groups on you as a better way, a better life for you, okay? It's not what's in it for me. It's what's in it for God. It says, glorify God in all you do, 1 Corinthians 10. So, how can I serve for his glory? That's the question we should be asking. I saw an article uh, this week, why you should start a small group. And it said, you will feel like part of God's family. You will understand the Bible. You will handle stress better. You will share Christ more. You will understand worship. You will develop leadership skills. 
you will be a New Testament Christian. Sounds great, right? Well, is that really why we join small groups? I mean, first and foremost, we should be asking, how can I love, how can I speak, how can I serve, how can I care for one another in order to glorify God? And man, God is gracious enough to give us a great blessing in that small group. Something to look forward to next time. Don't try to figure it all out. Just care for one another. Just obey God. Do it for His glory. That is your purpose in life. I started off by saying that is why you should join a small group. Small groups play a key role in your fulfillment of your life purpose, which is to glorify God through care for one another. So what's the big deal? The big deal is that small groups are the context for critical care, glorifying God in all things. That's the big deal about small groups. And often we might say, yes, small groups are great, small groups are good, but we just don't have the time, we we just don't really know if it's really important to join a small group, if we can get all these things in a different way. Maybe I'm serving on a team. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm hanging out with friends somewhere else. Listen, if you are not studying God's word, praying for, caring for one another, then you need to be in a small group. Whether it's a small group here in a church, or whether you're meeting in your home with others for that purpose, you need to understand that care for one another is critical. And that happens in the context of small groups. Before I close in prayer, I just want to help us focus right now. It says in the last part of this verse, chapter 11 here of our passage, that In all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion or sovereignty forever and ever. We're going to celebrate the ordinance of communion because of Jesus Christ. Because of God's love, which through Christ was manifested to us. You guys remember when I read in 1 John that the love of God was manifested toward us in this, that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. He became the appeasement of wrath through his death and his resurrection on the cross. And so that is the reason we love one another. That is the reason we celebrate communion this morning. Because God loved us and he sent Jesus Christ his son, to die, to shed his blood. And just so that or we're, we know where this comes from, I want to read to you in 1 Corinthians where this comes. This is a command, ordinance from Jesus Christ. It says, On the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, Take, eat this, is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And so this communion is for every believer. It's not just for members of the Cape Bible Chapel local body. It's for every believer who's expressed their repentance and have asked Christ to be their personal Lord and Savior, who've committed their lives to Christ. And so let's celebrate that this morning. Jeff's going to come up, and um, I'm going to close in prayer. Then we just invite you to come forward and um, take communion in your time. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your love for us. It is something that is so hard for us to grasp. And because of that, it is difficult for us to love one another. It's impossible if we do not understand your love for us and accept it. So God, help us to know you more. Help us to appreciate your love and out of that, Meet with one another for the intention of your glory through caring for one another. And so, God, this morning, I pray that you would burden us to meet the needs of those around us. Knowing, God, that every single virtue, every single priority comes from that. Help us to know the needs in our body. Help us to pray for them. God, help us to pray for our own needs and our own desires and our own abilities and our own sensitivity towards others. Because frankly, sometimes we just don't care. Sometimes it's hard to love others. And God, as we've seen, you are the one who supplies every need. You are the one who supplies us with the gifts that you've given us to care for one another. And so I pray, God, that Cape Bible Chapel would be a community that gathers, that prays, that worships, but most of all, God, that cares for one another deeply. Let us do that, God. Bless our small groups this year. Help us to honor you with our lives and with our times as we gather. And we do this for your glory, God. In your name we pray. Amen.